Dressed, the History of Fashion is a production of Dressed Media. people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Dress listeners, today's episode is brought to you thanks to arguably, and I know you agree with me, April, the greatest perk of being a fashion historian with a podcast. <laughs> and that I know is, what you're going to say. <laughs> yes. And that is acquiring and reading books. And our listeners mm-hmm. should know this by now, but when some fashion history loving people might collect clothing, accessories, fashion plates... I collect books. They are hands down my absolute favorite object in the world and one of my great loves. (laughs) Yes. And you are preaching to the choir cast. Same, same, same. Many, many, many years ago, I have to say, sometimes we all play this game with ourselves. We're like, what would my ideal dream future for myself be? Daydreaming kind of type thing. And one of the aspects of my ideal future for myself was unlimited access to fashion history books. So here we are now. We are now going going on six years of doing the podcast and we have both added hundreds of books to our book collections cast and we acquire these books in a number of ways. Some we purchase, of course. Um, Some are sent to us from their authors, but more often than not, we actually receive books from the publishing houses, especially those that are consistently publishing within this genre of fashion and fashion history, um, including Bloomsbury and Tams and Hudson. So a big shout out to Carly and Harry, who are contacts there, respectively at these publishing houses for, for forwarding any fashion and fashion history titles our way. Oh, yeah. And while a good amount of the interviews we feature on Dressed are with the authors of the books we acquire in these number of ways, Unfortunately, we cannot interview every single author on our shelves, although believe me, dress listeners, we do try. We have over we 400 episodes now. So We have I, we have over like 450 episodes now at this point. Yeah, like, so we yeah. try. And mm-hmm. this is actually where the inspiration for today's episode came from because April and I's bookshelves are bursting at the seams with new or new to us titles that we have yet to feature on the show. And so we are going to highlight a few of those for you today and so that you can acquire them yourselves, mm-hmm. perhaps. And so let's get started, April, perhaps in no particular order. Okay, so um, I think I want to talk first about one that you and I were both super excited to receive. It is a book that has not actually been published yet. So uh, advanced copies are definitely a perk in our field, dress listeners. But this particular book has been published by Tamsin Hudson or will is soon to be published by Tamsin Hudson in their association with the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. And it is part of their much larger dress and fashion in detail series. 
Yeah. And I actually have the, I think I have the 18th and 19th century fashion and detail books. And it's exactly mm-hmm. what you would think it would be, dress listeners. So the most exquisite, jaw-droppingly beautiful, extant European clothing and accessories photographed in detail. So it's basically the next best thing to being able to actually handle the clothing and or observe it up close, say under a microscope. So, so, so cool. Yeah, and I I actually have another title from this series, which is entitled Dress in Detail from Around the World. And this book was given to me years ago as a parting gift from a friend when I was moving to New York to go to grad school to study fashion history. So this series has been around for, you know, a while now. And it is a wonderful series. And the latest addition to it is no exception because this one actually moves beyond the realm of European fashion. On November 28th of this year, which is, of course, 2023, dress listeners, you can then get your hands on a copy of Chinese Dress in Detail, which is by Sal Fang Chen, who is a curator in the Asian department at the Victoria and Albert Museum, and also a specialist in Chinese textiles and dress. And as the book's press release tells us, the book is, quote, with rich use of materials, masterful weaving and dyeing techniques, and intricate decorative embroidery, the history of Chinese dress has much to interest fashion lovers today. Chinese dress in detail brings together nearly 100 items of clothing from as early as the Shang Dynasty, which is um, approximately 1600 to 1046 BCE, which is obviously a very long time ago, (laughs) all the way up into the present day. And the book showcases some of the finest pieces in the Victorian Albert Museum's dress collection, end quote. So, I mean, this book is drop dead gorgeous. It features eight thematic chapters and also has a head to toe overview of Chinese fashion for women, men, and children, which is very cool because we don't see a lot of books out there on children's dress. No, and... We, of course, are probably remiss to not have done many episodes on children's dress in the past. We said this before, and we should probably get on it. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, we just wanted to highlight a few of the many exquisite items featured in this book to give you an idea of what to expect when you get your hands on it. So first up is this festive robe for a Manchu woman. It's satin weave silk. And it's embroidery and silk threads, and it dates to 1736 to 1820. And this particular entry is part of the sleeves section and highlights the robe's very distinctive cuff specifically. Quote, this type of embroidered and edged cuff was introduced to China when Manchu leaders established the ruling Qing dynasty in the 17th century. The shape of the cuff, known as a horse hoof cuff, which is, of course, a fitting term as the Manchu were skilled horse riders, allowed for both holding the reins and protecting the hands. And in this example, the cuff is in a contrasting material to the rest of the garment. It features two bands of colored silk embroidery on black satin, both with the same design of butterflies and peonies, but on a slightly different scale. The bands are edged in a braid of gold wrapped thread and a strip of woven gold silk. The rest of the robe is made from a soft yellow satin embroidered in pale blues and white and has a floral theme echoing the cuffs. So of course, this is all hand done. It's, Mm -hmm. I mean, that description, you can kind of just kind of guess at how exquisite this garment is, but just one example of many featured in this book. Yeah. And the the photos, you get to see the photos of what we're talking about. I'm sure you you can kind of picture this in your imagination um, currently, but it doesn't even do it justice when you're actually look at 
looking at them in the book. So this book is so wonderful. It covers not only a wide swath of time and geography, but also cultures. Because let's not forget, dress listeners, that China is a huge country. It is incredibly ethnically diverse as well. And the object that I would like to highlight is this wonderful woven bamboo, rattan, and plain weave cotton hat, which is worn by Hakka women. Um, And the particular example in the book dates to 1950 um, to 1980, but essentially it is a large flat woven disc has a hole in the center that rests on the head and then the disc sits parallel to the ground and appears to be maybe like three feet in diameter and from this hangs a pleated veil that runs all along the outer edge of the hat and the caption in the book for this reads quote in hong kong Hakka women wear these distinctive hats known as lang mao or a cool hat when working outdoors Originally from northern China, the Hakka people migrated south, with some eventually settling in the rural areas of Hong Kong at the turn of the 20th century. And the term Hakka means guest people, which is a reference to their history of continual migration and resettlement. And then it goes on to say, Hakka women prefer simplicity and comfort when it comes to clothing, with black being a favorite color for workwear. And of course, these are just two of these really amazing examples of clothing and dress that are highlighted in detail in this book. You know, there's chapters on headwear, the necklines, shoulders, sleeves, pleats, edging, buttons, embroidery, footwear. I mean, there really is something for everyone who is looking to satiate their fashion history desires to get up and close and personal with garments. So, Keep your eyes and ears open for that book. Let's just say, hopefully it's coming to a bookshelf near you this fall and possibly, and we haven't worked out the details on this yet, I'm still working on it, possibly a podcast known as Dressed near you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, April, your object selection segues quite nicely into the first book I wanted to talk about and on a very similar theme. So the Hakka peoples are one of 56 officially recognized ethnic groups in China And many of those ethnic groups are featured in the exquisitely illustrated, beautifully and thoughtfully written book, China Adorned Ritual and Custom of Ancient Cultures by Professor Dong Chiao, with photography by Kat Vinton. And this author is a cultural anthropologist, and the book is the culmination of three decades of research that she compiled by traveling across China to study some 30 or so ethnic groups. And China Adorned, quote, challenges the monolithic idea of Chinese, quote unquote, culture and fashion, turning the lens on the rich clothing and jewelry traditions of ethnic minority groups, end quote. The introductory essay by Dong in which she talks about her evolving relationship to diverse cultural dress practices in China. She talks about how her mind first turned to the question of clothing in the 1960s when she was a teenager. And this was during the beginnings of the communist cultural revolution in China, which denounced the past and sought to purge society from tradition. And part of that purging was both traditional language and foreign elements of dress in favor of a ubiquitous uniform. And she writes, quote, my mother's high heeled shoes disappeared from her wardrobe and out in the streets, my home province of Yunnan, some people were ready to confront anyone wearing trousers they deemed too tight. 
And she writes about how in the 60s and 70s that schools across China were shuttered, they were closed, and she actually became one of the millions of urban youths that were sent to the countryside to be quote-unquote reformed through rural labor. But as she notes, this was in some ways a gift because this is where she encountered the rich cultures and cultural dress practices of the ethnic minorities, whom she said, quote, opened my eyes to the color of the world and showed me the desire to decorate ourselves in the name of beauty and how that is part of our human nature, end quote. It was in the wake of the Cultural Revolution in the 1980s when she finally found her calling in ethnographic research, and it was during this period that she visited a Miao village where she spoke with the village elders, hoping to gain insights into their way of life, and she recounts this experience she had during which one of these conversations, one of the village elders asked her, can you read? And she says, I was dumbstruck. Why is he asking that, I thought. The old man pointed at a girl wearing a traditional dress and said, quote, our ancestral heritage is written here. This is such an amazing story. She continues on, quote, there were no words written on the clothes, just a sequence of beautiful designs, both embroidered and printed in wax. Only then did I realize that I couldn't, quote unquote, read a word. Seeing my confusion, the old man proceeded to explain all the different decorative motifs. He pointed out which imagery spoke of the creation myth, which patterns were in fact records of their ancestors' migration from the Yellow River region of China, and which stitching had come from whose needle, and which colors were bound to a person's faith and fate, end quote. And this is such an incredible story. She continues on that nearly all Chinese ethnic groups use clothing as a wordless form of communication. And this is something, of course, that we talk about all the time on Dressed. Yeah, and I mean, this is one of those books that is really just a potent reminder in our fast-paced, fast-fashioned modern world about why dress matters and also just how interwoven it is into the daily heartbeat of people's everyday lives. And this is true, of course, across cultures, throughout history. And as we say it time and again on the show, it really speaks to our shared humanity on so many levels, even if what the clothing says and the function it serves changes depending on which culture you study. So that clothing and textiles are valuable and valued is a common thread in cultures around the world. And this is something demonstrated so beautifully in this book, China Adorned, as well as in the next book that we want to talk about and share with you all dress listeners, which is Patchwork, A World Tour by Catherine Legrand. Yes, quote, what do Korean bohagi wrapping cloths, Cameroonian Bamaliki bubus, Peruvian Montera hats, and Hungarian sisavar shepherd cloaks have in common. Each is made using an ancient technique of patchwork, the art of juxtaposing fabrics and motifs to create blankets, clothes, accessories, and more. This volume follows Catherine Legrand as she sews together an ethnographic patchwork map. Legrand has spent many years traveling and researching textiles and has a deep knowledge of the techniques and traditions that characterize patchwork, enabling her to create an engaging fabric-inspired travel log. Piecing together much like the gorgeous textiles it portrays, Legrand's beautifully illustrated history features over 300 dazzling photographs of patchwork from around the world and takes the reader from Europe to the Americas to Africa and Asia where these ancient traditions survive and patchwork is part of the fabric of everyday life, end quote. This book is so 
incredible. Mm-hmm. And we want to highlight a few of the stunning array of objects featured in Catherine's book for you here at Dress Listeners. So as April kind of alluded to, her book starts in Europe and features pieces from France, Great Britain, Sweden, Hungary, and the Netherlands before moving to the Americas, which is where we're going to highlight a few pieces from the United States, which has an incredibly rich and varied quilting tradition, as all of these cultures do around the world. And I have to say, April, for as many quilts as I have seen in my lifetime and studied, I have never seen many of the types of quilts featured in this book. It's so cool. Same, 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 same. And I grew up, my mom was a huge quilter. Yeah. Some of these are like, oh, wow. Uh, Yeah, yeah. so inventive and creative. And And regional. Yes, exactly. So that includes the so-called yo-yo quilt, which was popular during the 30s and 40s. Had you heard of these? I had not. So Catherine writes in her book, quote, made from boldly colored or floral cottons taken from old summer dresses or grandma's aprons. These quilts are a way of dealing with the restrictions of the Great Depression. So they apparently hail from Great Britain, where they are known as Suffolk Puffs, Suffolk Puffs, (laughs) quote, from the name of the country southeast of London. Sources date its origins to around 1600, and it is said that tufts of wool from Suffolk sheep were once used to stuff the individual puffs. So essentially, the yo-yos or puffs are like this circular-shaped three-dimensional element, and they kind of look like a cocard almost, and... So they're comprised of any number of different fabrics, and then they're sewn to each other and then sewn on a fabric ground and arranged in any number of variations like diamonds, hexagons, triangles, to create this mosaic effect, which is absolutely stunning. And the version she features is made of approximately 2,500 yo-yos. Yeah, so it's like all these little individual pieces put together to create the overall textile. It's amazing. Yes, exactly. And speaking of piecing, we can't not talk about another stunning example of upcycling ingenuity, which is the cigar ribbon quilt featured in the book. And as it sounds, it is entirely comprised of cigar ribbons. So Legrand writes, quote, In 19th century New York, high society men would often gather in the library after dinner to smoke a cigar while the women continued their conversation in the living room. At that time, cigars were sold in cedar boxes containing bundles of 10 to 50 cigars tied with a yellow silk ribbon that bore the maker's mark. Accustomed to the art of recycling, women began to save the silk ribbons that wrapped the cigars and incorporated them into crazy quilts. Crazy quilts are a style of quilt that that move beyond the geometric rationale that commonly guided quilt making. Yeah, anything goes in a crazy quilt. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Throw it all in, yeah. Um, And apparently this was such a popular trend during the late 19th century that it was reported on in Good Housekeeping and Ladies' Home Journal, who published designs for cushions and also tablecloths to that, you know, you could make at home from recycled cigar ribbons. So waste not, want not. And also, too, I have to say they're, they're rather graphically aesthetically quite pleasing yes they're absolutely beautiful i mean every page of this book features one captivating quilt or patchwork item after another and they're all accompanied by like these fascinating stories fascinating text and she of course highlights the work of quilters from the g's bend which is the rural community in alabama established by formerly enslaved peoples in the wake of the civil war 
And today, artists carry on the quilt-making tradition of their ancestors, and their quilts have become highly covetable collector's items. And we've actually done an episode on this very topic, dress listeners, so check out the Fabric of Life, an interview with G's Bend quilt-maker Loretta Petway Bennett if you want to learn more about this living textile tradition from one of the artists keeping it alive. So now we're going to move out of the Americas, which features items from not just the U.S., but also Canada, Mexico, Panama, and Peru. And we're going to travel to the Africa and Near East section of the book. And you have patchwork traditions from 13 different countries in this section, including Namibia, which features a stunning portrait of a woman from the Herero ethnic group wearing a rainbow-colored floor-length patchwork dress and hat and she is this vision of color and joy juxtaposed against the desert landscape and this photograph in the book is from a series of photographs taken by Jim Naughton and was featured in his 2013 book Conflict and Costumes Um, and in it are these stunning portraits of various Herrera women wearing these gowns and men wearing uniforms all clearly influenced by European fashion which prompted Jim to ask the question Why would the Herrero adopt the clothes of the very people who cost them so dearly? And I'm going to answer that question. But first, I'm just going to say that you have to, dress listeners, just look up this book, Conflict in Costumes. Google it. I remember when these images came out in 2013 because they were all over like the internet and social media. They're just so incredibly, stunningly beautiful. Um, And it reminds me a lot of the Congolese Sapur culture as well, which we'll talk about, um, which we still need to do an episode on April. (laughs) I mean, so many topics that we keep saying we're going to get to, and we will one day get to them. Yeah, it's true. It's true. So anyway, so the answer to why would the Herrero adopt the clothes of the very people who cost them so dearly? So what is he talking about, right? Well... The answer traces back to the brutal era of German colonization in the late 19th and early 20th century that saw the decimation of nearly 80% of the Herero population, which is just a travesty. And like so many instances of European and American colonization around the world, German missionaries, when they first arrived on these people's land, right, wanted the Herero to cover their bodies and force them to adopt European standards of modesty and dress. And of course, this is intimately tied to religion. And when the Germans left South Africa in 1915, quote, out of defiance, as Catherine writes, Herrero men began wearing these abandoned military garments and made them part of their cultural identity. Similarly, Herrero women adopted, quote, a Victorian-inspired long dress with a matching headdress shaped like symbolic cow horns. And as Catherine concludes, as well as looking good, this reappropriation of historical styles is a symbol of the defiance and resilience of the men and women of Namibia. So these are just a few of the incredible array of pieces featured in this book, Dress Listeners, that included Asafo flags from Ghana, you know, Indian Gadra quilts, Japanese Boro. I mean, the list goes on. It's just really, really incredible to see how Patrick plays out in all of these different cultural settings. Yes, this is such a gorgeous book. And while we are on the subject of African fashion, you reminded me about a book that I have on my shelf that I purchased last year and really need to get to reading. Um, Sometimes we have books that, you know, we try to get to them as quickly as we can, but it takes a minute sometimes. Um, and that is the compendium Creating African Fashion Histories, Politics, Museums, and Sartorial Practices. 
quote, creating African fashion histories examines the stark disjuncture between African self-fashioning and museum practices. Conventionally, African clothing, textiles, and body adornments were classified by museums as examples of trade goods, art, and ethnographic materials, never as, quote-unquote, fashion. And the book blurb continues, quote, counterposing the dynamism of African fashion with museums' historic holdings thus provides a unique way of confronting ways in which coloniality persists in knowledge and institutions today. And this volume brings together an interdisciplinary group of scholars and curators to debate sources and approaches for constructing African fashion histories and to examine their potential for decolonizing museums, fashion studies, and global cultural history. Yes, and the book's description continues. The editors of this volume seek to answer questions such as, how can researchers use museum collections to reveal traces of past self-fashioning that are obscured by racialized forms of knowledge and institutional practice? How can archival, visual, oral, and ethnographic and online sources be deployed to capture the diversity of African sartorial past? How can scholars and curators decolonize the Eurocentric frames of thinking encapsulated in historic collections and current curricula can new collections of african fashion decolonize museum practice so from moroccan fashion bloggers to upmarket lagos designers the voices in this groundbreaking collection reveal fascinating histories and geographies of circulation within the continent and its diasporic communities end quote lots to unpack yeah that's obviously a more academic text maybe geared towards our listeners who are curators working within the museum and research spheres, but also very, very, very important. And of course, something we've talked about on dress is this problem of how African fashion, African dress is classified in museums. That's not unique to African fashion, right? This separation between what is deemed quote unquote fashion versus ethnographic traditional, that divide is generally applied to all non-European American cultures that exist outside the so-called Western fashion system. And it really is a huge problem because it continues to otherize and ostracize diverse cultural dress practices as somehow existing outside of the modern world, somehow being in contrast to the modern world, which is an issue. And in obviously in reality, April, these cultural dress practices are just as valuable as quote unquote Western fashion and arguably more valuable because they exist in many ways outside of and in spite of the mindless runaway train of overconsumption in the West, where consumers are so disconnected from the value of clothing. Tangent over. I could go <laughs> it's on. A tangent. It's a tangent that we um, get into frequently. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. And, and of course, a great reminder of today's thriving and diverse African fashion scene is the exhibition Africa Fashion, which originated at the Victorian Albert Museum in London and is currently on view for a couple more weeks at the Brooklyn Museum here in New York City. So if you haven't already seen it, do yourself a favor. You can um, head over to the Brooklyn Museum and check it out because it's on view until October 22nd. So if you can't make it to the exhibition, you can check out our two part interview with the exhibition's curator Christine Kachenska from earlier this year there will be a link in our show notes so many more books to discuss dress listeners but first a word from our sponsors 
podcast. As you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For limited time dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Welcome back, dress listeners. As a fashion history podcast, vintage clothing has been a pretty consistent topic of discussion on the show. April wears a lot of vintage. I sell it occasionally. We recently did an episode on how to shop for vintage clothing, and we've done numerous interviews with people who collect it, sell it, exclusively wear it. We've even debated which vintage belongs in museums versus people's closet. I mean, we've done, we've covered it so much on the show. So I'm very pleased to share with you, dress listeners, a recently published book called Vintage Fashion, a complete source book by Nikki Albrechtson. And Nikki is an author, costume designer, stylist, and the director of the Vintage Archive, Vintage Labels Limited, which sources inspirational clothing and printed textiles for fashion brands and costume designers for film and TV. Yeah, and this book is aimed at those looking to acquire a vintage wardrobe and, quote, is not just another history of fashion. It is a survey of how the fashion past continues to inspire the fashion present. It features over 1,000 standout pieces dating from the 1920s to the 1980s, including many icons of vintage fashion from Marilyn Monroe's bra to the Aussie Clark dress that was made famous by David Hockney's painting, end quote. So uh, the book is organized into three main sections. The first is decades, which traces the transformation in silhouettes, materials, etc. that define the fashions of each given decade. And there are also some really fabulous pieces in this section, um, including 1930s capelets, which Nikki reminds us are hot ticket items for collectors currently. So there are so many drool-worthy pieces throughout this book, which the book is super helpful for dating and identification purposes, especially if you use it in tandem with our recent How to Shop for Vintage episode. And I think my favorite section has to be the second, which was entitled Elements and was organized by theme to examine the individual components of a vintage look. So you have everything from swimsuits, aprons, knitwear, and wedding dresses to high heels, sunglasses, handbags, and belts. And I actually never realized that I could be so excited about belts, April. (laughs) (laughs) I do love a good belt buckle in my own collection, but I guess I've never considered them too much in the historical reference beyond Mm -hmm. Chatelaine's. Mm -hmm. So there are Bakelite buckles, buckles with photographs in them. And then my personal favorite, which is not an object, but a photograph of an object. So it's a Terrence Donovan photograph of model Kristen Darnell from 1978. And she's wearing a Chloe knitted cardigan 
coat with a mat with matching metal epaulets and a metal belt that spells out Chloe in metal. It's so cool. Ah. I want one that says Cassidy. <laughs> <laughs> well, stay tuned, dress listeners, for a Chloe episode coming quite soon. Just saying. In the book, also, there are some super fabulous Lucite heels, which the author notes is experiencing a resurgence in the past few years. You know, just think about listeners, those plastic fish floating in your platform shoes. We've all seen those circulating on Instagram, I'm sure. But she also notes that you can trace this back to vintage examples, including a certain pair of 1950s Anita Last for Engel Fetzer Lucite heels have a beautiful red fabric rose vamp that matches the red rose with stem that is perfectly preserved in the heel of the shoes. And as Marilyn Monroe reminds us in this section, quote, give a girl the right shoes and she can conquer the world, end quote. So this is a super fun and resourceful book, dress listeners. Check it out. And while we are on the topic of vintage shopping and expertise, I want to give a shout out to a book that will be hitting shelves next month in November 2023, and which has not actually yet hit the dressed bookshelf, but is coming soon. And that is the book, How to Be Fabulous, Sustainable Secondhand Style on a Shoestring, quote, a new breed of fashion guide that dives into the world of pre-loved clothing and inspires you to get creative on any budget. And this book is by ex-vintage dealer, fellow podcaster, writer, and fashion aficionado, Charlotte Dallison, who shares all her tips and tricks on vintage clothing including how to hunt down true vintage and secondhand gems, shop for your size in vintage, and how to care for pre-loved pieces. And it features advice from people operating within the vintage sphere, and I may or may not be one of them. (laughs) So keep your eyes open for that and your ears open for Charlotte's own podcast, which is also titled How to Be Fabulous. Yes. And, and, And since we're on this tip of giving shout outs Cass. I want to give one more shout out to past dressed guest Lauren Downing Peters on the recent release of her book entitled Fashion Before Plus Size, Bodies, Bias, and the Birth of an Industry. And um, some of you might remember that Lauren joined us back in 2019 to discuss the history of plus size fashion which was at that time the her subject of research for her dissertation. And um, this is the book that has come out of her PhD dissertation research, quote, fashion before plus size considers what became before plus size fashion, while also shedding new light on the ways that the fashion industry not only perpetuates, but produces weight bias. By situating stoutware at the confluence of mass manufacturing, beauty ideals, standardized sizing, health discourse, and consumer culture, this book exposes the flawed foundations upon which the contemporary plus-size fashion industry has been built. So congratulations, Lauren. Again, we will, of course, post um, a link to Lauren's interview on Dressed um, in the past, as well as all of the books that we have discussed today in our show notes. So what book is next on your list, Cass? 
Well, while we are on the subject of PhD research turned book, I want to be sure and mention Sylvia Vasurka's first book, Fashioning Submission, Documenting Fashion, Taste, and Identity in World War II Italy through Belizia, Belizia magazine. As the book's description reads, quote, unlike in the United Kingdom and France, where fashion during the Second World War is extensively debated, in Italy it is an under-researched topic, and the behind-the-scenes history of the fashion magazine Belizia, the Italian Vogue, launched in 1941 has never been submitted to scholarly attention, even though its utopian function in defining a new culture of fashion and code of glamour contributed to the totalitarian project of building a, quote, new Italian woman. The current volume aspires to fill this gap using the case of Belitza as a kaleidoscope for looking through Italian history and culture, drawing on new primary sources and extraordinary iconography. Congratulations, Lauren and Sylvia, on the publication of your first book. So exciting. Yes. April, what do you have next for us? Well, I have a little series that I would like to mention. And I know that you and I have both have um, some of these books on our shelves. I don't have them all, but I have several of them. It's a series published by Tamsin Hudson. And the series is called The World According to dot, 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 right? So someone's name will come after the dot, dot, dot. <laughs> um, and these are kind of small, but really fantastic gift-worthy books that are dedicated to famous fashion designers and their fashion words of wisdom and other maxims. So they're basically quotes from these specific designers. These designers include Yves Saint Laurent, Dior, Chanel, Karl Lagerfeld, and Lee McQueen. So each of these designers has their own individual book. It's not a compendium of all of them. And um, our listeners may remember McQueen is, of course, the subject of a very recent podcast and is arguably one of the greatest designers of the 20th and 21st centuries. Um, and I have The World According to Lee McQueen on my bookshelf. This particular version is edited by freelance fashion curator and writer Louise Ritter. Quote, celebrated for his uniquely radical aesthetic, McQueen has captured the public's imagination as few other fashion designers have before or since. Like his designs, McQueen was adamant in his opinions. His quotes on creativity include, quote, you've got to know the rules to break them. And that's what I'm here for, to demolish the rules, but to keep tradition, end quote. And on the subject of women, Quote, I design clothes because I don't want women to all look innocent and naive. I want people to be afraid of the women I dress, end quote. <laughs> and, and, you know, this really makes this a thoroughly thought-provoking book. It features specially commissioned illustrations, and this is the perfect gift for fans of fashion and of McQueen. It captures the sharp wit and unbridled spirit of a true visionary, end quote. It's a good one, just saying. Yeah, and I have the Yves Saint Laurent version, which provides some really wonderful insights into his work and perspective, including his love-hate relationship with the industry within which he's working, like quotes like, I adore clothes, but I hate fashion. Fashion <laughs> is an incurable disease. <laughs> so as the kind of little blurb tells us, founded by Yves Saint Laurent and Pierre Berger in 1962, shortly after the young couturier left his post at the helm of Dior, Yves Saint Laurent would become one of the most successful and influential haute couture houses in Paris. 
And introducing less smoking, the first tuxedo suit for women in 1966, Saint Laurent also presented iconic art-inspired creations from Mondrian dresses to precious Van Gogh embroidery and the famous Ballet Russe collection. The designer put the women who wore his clothes first. So you have the quote, what's most important in couture is the body we dress, the woman we dress, more so than the ideas we might have. He was determined to change attitudes of the era. Quote, fashion's purpose is not only to make women look beautiful, but also to reassure them and give them confidence. And then, as I mentioned, he could be critical of the fashion industry. And he saw himself as a craftsman who perfectly understood his customer, saying, I think there are three kinds of designers, the great ones, the true ones, and the ones who know how to delight a woman just by making a very simple dress or a very simple suit. So these books are really fun. They are great gift items. They're accessible and they're inspiring. And so this is really a great series of books from History's Great Designers. Yes. And um, I honestly, I, I have found these so useful for getting a glimpse into these designers' minds and their creative processes. And I find myself returning to them again and again for quotes to use in like our dressed episodes or for lots of other reasons. So, or even to simply better understand their design motivations. So, right, right, right. I am so glad that you mentioned Yves Saint Laurent Cass because I have a book next that I would like to talk about that's on my shelf entitled Yves Saint Laurent and Art, which was published last year in 2022 and was published to accompany an epic six exhibition display of the designer's works across multiple museums in Paris. So this project was um, a celebration of 60 years of the founding of the house. This book was edited by Stephen Jansen, co-curator of Yves Saint Laurent at the museums and independent curator Muna Mikure. Quote, in January 1962, Yves Saint Laurent launched his very first collection to celebrate the 60th anniversary of the founding of his couture house, the Musée Yves Saint Laurent. Paris is looking back at the couturier's work and juxtaposing his creations with artworks from the collections of five major Paris institutions, the Musée d'Orsay, the Louvre, the Centre Pompidou, and the Musée d'Art Moderne de la Ville de Paris, and the Musée Picasso, as well as presenting the behind-the-scenes glimpse into the secrets of the couture at the Musée Yves Saint Laurent. From the ancient world to pop art, Yves Saint Laurent regularly took inspiration from art history as he combined colors, carved out new forms, and rethought the structure of garments in order to create his own masterpieces. Here, androgynous silhouettes and Proustian gowns stand alongside Edouard Manet's Le Déjeuner sur l'herbe. Feather patterns respond to Jackson Pollock's drip paintings. Flowing silhouettes merge with a mural by Raoul Dufy. Lucio Fontano's neon lights make metallic fabric sparkle, and the motifs on a coat echo the dance by Henri Matisse. Exploring the couturier's deliberate homages to the masters of art and his never-ending quest for new means of aesthetic expression, Yves Saint Laurent and art takes readers on an unforgettable journey throughout history with Yves Saint Laurent as a guide. Such an incredible gift to everyone last year and something we can visit again through this book. Yes. And um, while these exhibitions have since closed, dress listeners, you can almost always check out an exhibition of the designer's work at the Yves Saint Laurent Museum, which is one of our very favorite stops on our Paris fashion history tours that we do. 
And actually, this exhibition um, that we saw this summer um, is still up, and it is still up until January. Yves Saint Laurent Shapes and Forms puts Yves Saint Laurent's work in conversation with the work of artist Claudia Weiser. Dress listeners, we really enjoyed highlighting some of the books from the dressed bookshelf for you today, although this was by no means all of them. If we attempted to do that, we would be here all day. But if you are interested in a more thorough overview of books featured on the podcast over the last six seasons, you can check out our digital bookshelf on bookshop.org. We will, of course, put a link in our show notes. This is a win-win-win. When you purchase a book from our bookshelf, it supports the author, it supports an independent bookseller, and two of your favorite podcasters. So that address, if you want to check it out, is bookshop.org org forward slash shop forward slash dressed and and just a little word here well we would love 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 to have every single book that we have ever spoken about on the podcast on our bookshelf it's technically not possible and um i i mean that when i say technically in the literal sense (laughs) um because there is this whole industry behind the scenes that creates book distribution channels and these circumvent the globe and sometimes if a particular distributor does not work with bookshop.org we cannot post that book on our bookshelf and this is this is frustrating for sure and just know that we know this firsthand because Cass and I cannot post the book that we wrote together on our own bookshelf (laughs) (laughs) that book is of course called fashion and the art of pochoir it was released back in 2015 we have done an episode on this intersection of art fashion and the fashion press of the 19 teens and the 1920s which is the subject of our book so if you would like to learn more about that you can tune back into that past episode of the podcast even better you can pick up a copy of the book for yourself but you can't do it via our bookshelf <laughs> no but there are tons of copies out there so get your hands yeah, on yeah one. i think it's out of print i think it's out of print yeah. now but it's like not terribly expensive, yeah exactly so. And if you're not interested in purchasing any of these books, that's totally okay too. If you're someone who likes to borrow books, go check them out from the library. Be sure and check out your local library. You can head on over to worldcat.org to look and look up a title and see which library in your vicinity carries it. And if they don't have it, you can always request it through ILL or Interlibrary Loan, which is an invaluable and so underused resource. And also a reminder that we are going to link to the books as well as the past dress episodes mentioned in today's episode in our show notes. We will also find links to two past dress podcast episodes with more book recommendations. (laughs) The first is from our very first season of the show in which we discuss our favorite fashion history books. And then another from last year in which we discuss our favorite fashion autobiography. Yes, so many fashion history books, so little time. And because of that, we will let you get to reading those books, dress listeners. Thank you so much for joining us today. May you consider writing your own piece of fashion history next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us, you can email us at hello at dressedhistory.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you will find images and reels accompanying each week's episodes. If you would like to find the Instagram content specifically connected to this episode, check out the hashtag dressed325. That's dressed and the numbers 325. 
And remember, you can find a link to listen ad-free for just $3 a month in our show notes and at the link tree on our Instagram. And if you have a moment and want to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we always appreciate your support. More Dressed coming your way on Thursday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of Dressed Media.